Section 3 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 6. The churches of Venice are rich in pictures, and many a masterpiece lurks in the unaccommodating gloom of side chapels and sacristies. Many a noble work is perched behind the dusty candles and muslin roses of a scantily visited altar. Some of them, indeed, hidden behind the altar, suffer in a darkness that can never be explored. The facilities offered you for approaching the picture in such cases are a mockery of your irritated wish. You stand at tiptoe on a three-legged stool. You climb a rickety ladder. You almost mount upon the shoulders of the custode. You do everything but see the picture. You see just enough to be sure it's beautiful. You catch a glimpse of a divine head, of a fig tree against a mellow sky. But the rest is impenetrable mystery. You renounce all hope, for instance, of approaching the magnificent Cima da Corneliano in San Giovanni in Bragora, and bethinking yourself of the immaculate purity that shines in the spirit of this master, you renounce it with chagrin and pain. Behind the high altar in that church hangs the baptism of Christ by Chima, which I believe has been more or less repainted. You can make the thing out in spots. You see it has a fullness of perfection, but you turn away from it with a stiff neck and promise yourself consolation in the academy and at the Madonna dell'Orto, where two noble works by the same hand, pictures as clear as a summer twilight, present themselves in better circumstances. It may be said as a general thing that you never see the Tintoret. You admire him, you adore him, you think him the greatest of painters. But in the great majority of cases, your eyes fail to deal with him. This is partly his own fault. So many of his works have turned to blackness, and are positively rotting in their frames. At the Scuola di San Rocco, where there are acres of him, there is scarcely anything at all adequately visible, save the immense crucifixion in the upper story. It is true that in looking at this huge composition, you look at many pictures. It has not only a multitude of figures, but a wealth of episodes. And you pass from one of these to the other as if you were doing a gallery. Surely no single picture in the world contains more of human life. There is everything in it, including the most exquisite beauty. It is one of the greatest things of art. It is always interesting. There are works of the artist which contain touches more exquisite, revelations of beauty more radiant, but there is no other vision of so intense a reality, an execution, so splendid. The interest, the impressiveness of that whole corner of Venice, however melancholy the effect of its gorgeous and ill-lighted chambers, gives a strange importance to a visit to the Scuola. Nothing that all travellers go to see seems to suffer less from the occasions of travellers. It is one of the loneliest booths of the bazaar and the author of these lines has always had the good fortune, which he wishes to every other traveller, of having it to himself. 
I think most visitors find the place rather alarming and wicked-looking. They walk about a while among the fitful figures that gleam here and there out of the great tapestry, as it were, with which the painter has hung all the walls, and then, depressed and bewildered by the portentous solemnity of these objects, by strange glimpses of unnatural scenes, by the echo of their lonely footsteps on the vast stone floors, they take a hasty departure, finding themselves again with a sense of release from danger, a sense that the genius Lozo was a sort of mad whitewasher who worked with a bad mixture in the bright light of the tampo, among the beggars, the orange vendors, and the passing gondolas. Solemn indeed is the place, solemn and strangely suggestive, for the simple reason that we shall scarcely find four walls elsewhere that enclose within a like area an equal quantity of genius. The air is thick with it, and dense and difficult to breathe, for it was genius that was not happy, inasmuch as it lacked the art to fix itself forever. It is not immortality that we breathe of the Squala di San Rocco, but a conscious, reluctant mortality. Fortunately, however, we can turn to the Ducal Palace, where everything is so brilliant and splendid that the poor, dusky Tintoret is lifted in spite of himself into the concert. This deeply original building is, of course, the loveliest thing in Venice, and a morning stroll there is a wonderful illumination. Cunningly select your hour. Half the enjoyment of Venice is a question of dodging. And enter at about one o'clock when the tourists have flocked off to lunch and the echoes of the charming chambers have gone to sleep among the sunbeams. There is no brighter place in Venice, by which I mean that on the whole there is none half so bright. The reflected sunshine plays up through the great windows from the glittering lagoon and shimmers and twinkles over gilded walls and ceilings. All the history of Venice, all its splendid stately past, glows around you in the strong sea light. Everyone here is magnificent, but the great Veronese is the most magnificent of all. He swims before you in a silver cloud. He thrones in an eternal morning. The deep blue sky burns behind him, streaked across with milky bars. The white colonnades sustain the richest canopies, under which the first gentlemen and ladies in the world both render homage and receive it. Their glorious garments rustle in the air of the sea, and their sunlighted faces are the very complexion of Venice. The mixture of pride and piety of politics and religion, of art and patriotism, gives a splendid dignity to every scene. Never was a painter more nobly joyous. Never did an artist take a greater delight in life, seeing it all as a kind of breezy festival and feeling it through the medium of perpetual success. He revels in the gold-framed ovals of the ceilings multiplies himself there with the fluttering movement of an embroidered banner that tosses itself into the blue. He was the happiest of painters and produced the happiest picture in the world. The Rape of Europa surely deserves this title. 
It is impossible to look at it without aching with envy. Nowhere else in art is such a temperament revealed. Never did inclination and opportunity combine to express such enjoyment. The mixture of flowers and gems and brocade, of blooming flesh and shining sea and waving groves, of youth, health, movement, desire, all this is the brightest vision that ever descended upon the soul of a painter. Happy the artist who could entertain such a vision, happy the artist who could paint it as the masterpiece I here recall is painted. The Tintoret's visions were not so bright as that, but he had several that were radiant enough. In the room that contains the work just cited are several smaller canvases by the greatly more complex genius of the Scuola di San Rocco, which are almost simple in their loveliness, almost happy in their simplicity. They have kept their brightness through the centuries, and they shine with their neighbours in these golden rooms. There is a piece of painting in one of them which is one of the sweetest things in Venice, and which reminds one afresh of those wild flowers of execution that bloom so profusely and so unheeded in the dark corners of all of the Tintoret's work. Palace Chasing Away Mars is, I believe, the name that is given to the picture, and it represents, in fact, a young woman of noble appearance administering a gentle push to a fine young man in armour, as if to tell him to keep his distance. It is of the gentleness of this push that I speak, the charming way in which she puts out her arm with a single bracelet on it and rests her young hand, its rosy fingers parted, on his dark breastplate. She bends her enchanting head with the effort, a head which has all the strange fairness that the Tintoret always sees in women, and the soft, living, flesh-like glow of all these members over which the brush has scarcely paused in its course, is as pretty an example of genius as all Venice can show. But why speak of the Tintoret, when I can say nothing of the great paradise which unfolds its somewhat smoky splendour and the wonder of its multitudinous circles in one of the other chambers? If it were not one of the first pictures in the world, it would be about the biggest and we must confess that the spectator gets from it at first chiefly an impression of quantity. Then he sees that this quantity is really wealth, that the dim confusion of faces is a magnificent composition, and that some of the details of this composition are extremely beautiful. It is impossible, however, in a retrospect of Venice to specify one's happiest hours, Though as one looks backward, certain ineffaceable moments start here and there into vividness. How is it possible to forget one's visits to the sacristy of the Frari, however frequent they may have been, and the great work of John Bellini, which forms the treasure of that apartment? 7. Nothing in Venice is more perfect than this, and we know of no work of art more complete. The picture is in three compartments. The Virgin sits in the central division with her child. Two venerable saints, standing close together, occupy each of the others. It is impossible to imagine anything more finished or more ripe. It is one of those things that sum up 
the genius of a painter, the experience of a life, the teaching of a school. It seems painted with molten gems which have only been clarified by time, and is as solemn as it is gorgeous, and as simple as it is deep. Giovanni Benini is more or less everywhere in Venice, and wherever he is, almost certain to be the first. First, I mean, in his own line, paints little else than the Madonna and the Saints. He has not Carpaccio's care for human life at large, nor the Tintoret's, nor that of the Veronese. Some of his greater pictures, however, where several figures are clustered together, have a richness of sanctity that is almost profane. There is one of them on the dark side of the room at the academy that contains Titian's Assumption, which, if we could only see it, its position is an inconceivable scandal, would evidently be one of the mightiest of so-called sacred pictures. So too is the Madonna of San Zacaria, hung in a cold, dim, dreary place, ever so much too high, but so mild and serene and so grandly disposed and accompanied that the proper attitude for even the most critical amateur as he looks at it strikes one as the bended knee. There is another noble Giombanini, one of the very few in which there is no virgin, at San Giovanni Crisostomo, a Saint Jerome, in a red dress, sitting aloft upon the rocks and with a landscape of extraordinary purity behind him. The absence of the peculiarly erect Madonna makes it an interesting surprise among the works of the painter and gives it a somewhat less strenuous air. But it has brilliant beauty, and the Saint Jerome is a delightful old personage. The same church contains another great picture for which the haunter of these places must find a shrine apart in his memory. One of the most interesting things he will have seen, if not the most brilliant, nothing appeals more to him than the three figures of Venetian ladies which occupy the foreground of a smallish canvas of Sebastian del Piombo, placed above the high altar of San Giovanni Crisostomo. Sebastian was a Venetian by birth, but few of his productions are to be seen in his native place. Few indeed are to be seen anywhere. The picture represents the patron saint of the church, accompanied by other saints and by the worldly votaries I have mentioned. These ladies stand together on the left, holding in their hands little white caskets. Two of them are in profile, but the foremost turns her face to the spectator. This face and figure are almost unique among the beautiful things of Venice, and they leave the susceptible observer with the impression of having made, or rather having missed, a strange, a dangerous but a most valuable acquaintance. The lady, who is superbly handsome, is the typical Venetian of the 16th century, and she remains for the mind the perfect flower of that society. Never was there a greater air of breeding, a deeper expression of tranquil superiority. She walks a goddess, as if she trod without sinking the waves of the Adriatic. It is impossible to conceive a more perfect expression of the aristocratic spirit, either in its pride or in its benignity. The magnificent creature is so strong and secure that she is gentle, 
and so quiet that in comparison all minor assumptions of calmness suggest only a vulgar alarm but for all this there are depths of possible disorder in her light-coloured eye i had meant however to say nothing about her for it is not right to speak of sebastian when one hasn't found room for carpaccio these visions come to one and one can neither hold them nor brush them aside memories of carpaccio the magnificent the delightful it's not for want of such visitations but only for want of space that i haven't said of him what i would there is little enough need of it for Carpaccio's sake, his fame being brighter today, thanks to the generous lamp Mr. Ruskin has held up to it, than it has ever been. Yet there is something ridiculous in talking of Venice without making him almost the refrain. He and the Tintoret are the two great realists, and it is hard to say which is the more human, the more various. The Tintoret had the mightier temperament, but Carpaccio, who had the advantage of more newness and more responsibility, sailed nearer to perfection. Here and there he quite touches it, as in the enchanting picture at the Academy of St. Ursula asleep in her little white bed in her high, clean room, where the angel visits her at dawn, or in the noble St. Jerome in his study at San Giorgio Schiavone, this latter work is a pearl of sentiment, and I may add, without being fantastic, a ruby of colour. It unites the most masterly finish with a kind of universal largeness of feeling, and he who has it well in his memory will never hear the name of Carpaccio without a throb of almost personal affection. Such, indeed, is the feeling that descends upon you in that wonderful little chapel of St. George of the Slaves, where this most personal and sociable of artists has expressed all the sweetness of his imagination. The place is small and incommodious. The pictures are out of sight and ill-lighted. The custodian is rapacious. The visitors are mutually intolerable. But the shabby little chapel is a palace of art. Mr. Ruskin has written a pamphlet about it which is a real aid to enjoyment. Though I can't but think the generous artist, with his keen senses and his just feeling, would have suffered to hear his eulogist declare that one of his other productions, in the Museo Civico of Palazzo Correa, a delightful portrait of two Venetian ladies with pet animals, is the, quote, finest picture in the world, end quote, it has no need of that to be thought admirable. What more can a painter desire? 8. May in Venice is better than April, but June is best of all. Then the days are hot, but not too hot, and the nights are more beautiful than the days. Then Venice is rosier than ever in the morning and more golden than ever as the day descends. She seems to expand and evaporate, to multiply all her reflections and iridescences. Then the life of her people and the strangeness of her constitution become a perpetual comedy, or at least a perpetual drama. 
then the gondola is your sole habitation and you spend days between sea and sky you go to the lido though the lido has been spoiled when i first saw it in 1869 it was a very natural place and there was but a rough lane across the little island from the landing place to the beach there was a bathing place in those days and a restaurant which was very bad but where in the warm evenings your dinner didn't much matter as you sat letting it cool on the wooden terrace that stretched out into the sea today the lido is part of a united italy and has been made the victim of villainous improvements a little cockney village has sprung up on its rural bosom and a third-rate boulevard leads from santa elisabetta to the adriatic there are bitumen walks and gas lamps, lodging houses, shops, and a teatro diurno. The bathing establishment is bigger than before, and the restaurant as well, but it is a compensation, perhaps, that the cuisine is no better. Such as it is, however, you won't scorn occasionally to partake of it on the breezy platform under which the bathers dart and splash, and which looks out to where the fishing boats with sails of orange and crimson wander along the darkening horizon. The beach at the Lido is still lonely and beautiful, and you can easily walk away from the Cockney village. The return to Venice in the sunset is classical and indispensable, and those who at that glowing hour have floated towards the towers that rise out of the lagoon will not easily part with the impression. But you indulge in larger excursions. You go to Burano and Torcello, to Malamocco and Chioggia. Torcello, like the Lido, has been improved. The deeply interesting little cathedral of the 8th century, which stood there on the edge of the sea, as touching in its ruin with its grassy threshold and its primitive mosaics, as the bleached bones of a human skeleton washed ashore by the tide has now been restored and made cheerful and the charm of the place its strange and suggestive desolation has well nigh departed it will still serve you as a pretext however for a day on the lagoon especially as you will disembark at burano and admire the wonderful fisher folk whose good looks and bad manners, I'm sorry to say, can scarcely be exaggerated. Burano is celebrated by the beauty of its women and the rapacity of its children, and it is a fact that though some of the ladies are rather bold about it, every one of them shows you a handsome face. The children are sailing for coppers, and in their desire to be satisfied, pursue your gondola into the sea. Chioggia is a larger Burano, and you carry away from either place a half-sad, half-cynical, but altogether pictorial impression, the impression of bright-coloured hovels, of bathing in stagnant canals, of young girls with faces of a delicate shape and a susceptible expression, with splendid heads of hair and complexions smeared with powder, faded yellow shawls that hang like old Greek draperies, and little wooden shoes that click as they go up and down the steps of the convex bridges, of brown-cheeked matrons with lustrous tresses and high tempers, 
massive throats encased with gold beads, and eyes that meet your own with a certain traditional defiance. The men throughout the islands of Venice are almost as handsome as the women. I have never seen so many good-looking rascals. At Burano and Chioggia they sit mending their nets, or lounge at the street corners. The conversation is always high-pitched, or clamour you to take a boat. And everywhere they decorate the scene with their splendid colour. Cheeks and throats as richly brown as the sails of their fishing smacks. Their sea-faded tatters, which are always a, quote, costume, their soft Venetian jargon, and the gallantry with which they wear their hats, an article that nowhere sits so well as on a mass of dense Venetian curls. If you are happy, you will find yourself after a June day in Venice, about ten o'clock, on a balcony that overhangs the Grand Canal, with your elbows on the broad ledge, a cigarette in your teeth, and a little good company beside you. The gondolas pass beneath, the watery surface gleams here and there from their lamps, some of which are coloured lanterns that move mysteriously in the darkness. There are some evenings in June when there are too many gondolas, too many lanterns, too many serenades in front of the hotels. The serenading in particular is overdone, but on such a balcony as I speak of, you needn't suffer from it, for in the apartment behind you, an accessible refuge, there is more good company, there are more cigarettes. If you are wise, you will step back there presently. 1882 End of Section 3